Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 362 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. Another loaded show for you, breaking down everything that happened over the last week across NXT and AEW. Not only that, on this particular edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, we have a special guest joining us, none other than the brand new NXT North American champion, Wes Lee, stopped by, not just for our first interview with him, but his first interview solo, period, since joining WWE. That's right, the exclusive right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I don't want to waste an ounce of your time as we get into today's show. So allow me to remind you right off the bat here, as I always do, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So what does that mean? That means heading on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, dropping a five-star rating for us taking a few moments out of your life with Apple Podcasts, also leaving a written review to let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, why you subscribe. Let them know that, and hopefully they will do the same. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. That is where we drop every new episode as soon as it goes live. We also tweet about wrestling all week long during the major shows. We post polls, videos, GIFs. Sometimes we even report a little bit of news as we did on Tuesday's edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, our WWE show. Go back and listen to that about WWE schedule, of course, along with everything else that happened this past week across SmackDown and Raw. But yeah, we tweet news on that account. Uh, We do live shows on Twitter spaces ahead of premium live events and pay-per-views. Point is, there's every reason to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, as I said, we have a ton to talk about. On today's show, we're going to speak with Wesley. We're going to break down everything that happened on the first NXT following Halloween Havoc. And we have plenty to talk about in the world of AEW as well. A reminder before we get into everything, we do a really good job here. If I'm going to do a little Barry Horowitz, I'll pat myself on the back. Uh, we do a really good job here putting timestamps in our episode description. So since there's so many different parts of today's show, if you want to skip around, if you want to listen to one part instead of the other, whatever the case might be, hit our episode description wherever you are listening to our podcast right now, and you will be able to find the timestamp. If you want to jump to the interview, if you want to jump to the NXT breakdown, if you want to jump to the AEW breakdown. But as always, I hope you all will remain with us for the entire show. And this particular show is going to kick off with our interview, sitting down one-on-one with the NXT North American champion, Wesley, who won the title, his first singles championship in WWE, and his first singles championship of any kind since the very beginning of his still young career. The guy's only 27 years old, Uh, but he just won that this past Saturday at Halloween Havoc, airing, of course, on Peacock. You can catch the replay, the ladder match that he was in, the Fatal Five-Way, one of the top two matches on the entire show. For many people, maybe the best match on the entire show. There's something about those NXT uh, mid-card North American Championship ladder matches that just don't fail. They seem to knock them out of the park time after time. And Wesley being able to win his championship there was certainly a monumental moment. We speak with him about that, uh, his entire run in WWE, whether he thought he would ever get this opportunity in the first place, many of the people he idolized and he thinks opened the door for him, uh, what it's like in the life of someone in the WWE Performance Center, even after they've already 
reached somewhat of a mountaintop. They've won a championship and they're featured on TV. What is it like for them behind the scenes? Some of the opponents he would like to fight in the future. And I also got him to explain the origin of the name Wes Lee, which I've been curious about for quite some time. So that interview is coming up first. Then we're going to go talk NXT and AEW. One more note I want to give uh, before I drop the interview. So I think you all know here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we really pride ourselves in putting together a quality show. Well, the Silver King made a huge rookie mistake while taping this interview with Wesley, and I did not check my microphone input. So rather than hear me like you do now on my whole microphone setup that I taped the podcast with, it unfortunately used the laptop microphone, which as I'm sure you are going to understand momentarily, it comes with a lot of echo, it doesn't sound as high of a quality, and it basically created an interview that doesn't sound uh, the level at which I would like to present it to you. Now, I did whatever editing I could to make it sound better. Wesley is fantastic. It's totally worth listening to for his answers and our conversation. I absolutely loved sitting down with him. At the same time, I just want to you know give you the heads up going into it that unfortunately the Silver King, and I certainly don't have the, the best voice in the world, but it sounds even worse uh, when it's taken on a computer laptop microphone as opposed to a professional microphone that we use to tape our show. So with all of that said, let us lead you into my conversation one-on-one with the NXT North American champion, Wesley. Thrilled to welcome the brand new NXT North American champion, Wesley, here to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast for the very first time. You can catch him weekly on NXT airing Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, on USA Network, and you can also see him win that championship he is holding right there, if you haven't already, by checking out NXT Halloween Havoc streaming now on Peacock. Wes, great to meet you. Congratulations on, I believe, your first singles title since really early in your career, if memory serves. Yes. Uh, I got to say, I've seen a lot of ladder matches in my day, and that was the cleanest unhooking of a title that I can ever remember. (laughs) It was one motion. Usually they're struggling up there, whatever. I know you addressed uh, a bit of this on NXT this week, right? But how did it feel to end a match that grueling on top of a ladder with a championship in your hands? Because that's a unique moment. You can win a title. You can be on the mat celebrating with a partner by yourself. But to literally be elevated, that is kind of saying something a little bit more, isn't it? Uh, Yes. uh, I honestly feel like it was symbolic. Um, The path that I have been on for the past borderline nine months has been filled with plenty of ups and downs. And the fact that I was able to scale the ladder to rise above all of the calamity that was happening on below us uh, to capture the North American championship, it feels like I was able to rise from the ashes of everything that had been happening and become the (laughs) <laughs> North American champion, like yeah. it, 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 uh, it, the, the the symbolism is there. Um, it really didn't hit me until after the fact, but yeah, I, climbing the ladder and I only had that one opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know I took Melo out with that meteor, but at the exact same time, he, he's a fighter, so he could have definitely came back and stopped me from doing it. So I, I had to get it in one fell swoop. Uh, we're gonna talk about the journey, how you got here, the reaction, all that type of stuff, but. I don't want to pass by that match just yet because there's a lot of highlights from that ladder match. The one that's probably going to be in highlight packages years from now is Von Wagner tossing your ass out of the ring into that announce table. Now, in wrestling, let's just say there's 
a lot of situations where you can figure out how to minimize the impact, let's say, right, of certain moves. I'm not really sure there's a way to do that when a dude is just shot putting you out of the ring onto a table. So what was it like to take that bump? What was the feeling when you're in the middle of the air there? What's going through your head? Uh, that whole thing of like time moving slowly when you're in a dangerous situation is 100% true. I felt like I was in the air for at least 10 seconds for every foot that he threw me was a second that I felt like I was in the air. And once the impact happened, I, 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 I don't want to say I blacked out, but like, right. I was just, I don't even know what I was feeling. I just know that I had to get up in right. some way, shape or form. The last time that he did that to me, he took me out for two weeks. Um, and I was not going to allow that to happen this time. Refused. Sure. So we uh, we all saw the really touching video of you and Shawn Michaels hugging backstage after the match. And Shawn in a press conference uh, that I was part of after the show got emotional again, talking about what that moment meant to you, joking that you guys have probably wept together a little bit more than a couple guys should. That's his words, not, <laughs> not mine. His words, not mine. Uh, what has his support meant to you? And does it ever kind of pop the fan in you, realizing you actually have this relationship with the heartbreak in Shawn Michaels? I like I, I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that I like I have that man's phone number in my phone. <laughs> like, right. We talk on the phone, we text, uh, like we have interactions every day that I see him at the PC. And yes, the inner child in me is like losing his mind over the fact that I have this relationship with Shawn Michaels. And the fact that we have been able to shed tears with each other means that we have a connection that you don't really get to have with a lot of people. And for me to have that with one of my idols is <laughs> that my entire time here has been indescribable, honestly. Mm. Every little bit that I have done, it's 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 been extreme icing on the cake because I 100% felt that I did not, I had no opportunity to make it here. So why did you feel that way? Because that's something that you have said previously and it's been said about you, people recalling the way you think and, and the way you've kind of, um, um, come about the process. Why Why was that in your head, young in your career, or even maybe even when you started in NXT? Um, this, that, it kind of stems back to just life itself. Uh, growing up, I never really felt that I would make it past 24 years old. Um, situations in life and just a certain kind of mindset prevented me from seeing past a certain point in life. Mm -hmm. uh, but once I started to venture out see the abilities that I actually do possess and how I'm able to fight for anything that I actually want. It's changed my outlook on the possibilities in life. But making it to the WWE was a very, very far-fetched goal for me. Mm -hmm. uh, being a smaller guy um, and I know that we have had um, a lot of progression with people of color in WWE over the years, and it's absolutely beautiful. And I'm blessed to be a part of that myself. Mm -hmm. But at first, it didn't seem like that was a possibility. Um, there have been numerous people that have knocked down a lot of doors uh, to make it a lot easier for younger generations, for people of color to really be successful with this. And I'm 100 percent a product of that. And I hope mm -hmm. that I can put that further along, too, so that there are people so that people that may have the exact same outlook that I had starting out into this, it gets null and null and void 
very from the beginning. If you work hard, you have something. The, the possibilities there. When would you say it first kind of clicked for you in your head that someone like you, you know, a person of color, let's say, just you know, using kind of your own phraseology there, um, could make it? Did you see someone else achieve in WWE where you said? He just kicked open a door. She just kicked open a door for me. Or was it just an overall kind of progression of the way uh, things have changed in wrestling over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years? Uh, Honestly, it started back when I was a child. Uh, Seeing certain individuals on my TV screen kind of put it into my mind that it was was possible for me. Uh, Seeing individuals like Booker T, uh, R-Truth, or... Kate Quick at the time when I was Kate watching, Quick. yeah, uh, like that. I, I I go all the way back to that because Kate Quick or Our Truth was the first person of color that was authentically himself, and he thrived. Yeah, like he had, he's had an illustrious career across the board, no matter where he was, mm-hmm. uh, because of his talent and his ability. His charisma is off the charts. The point that you can't keep a mic out of that man's hand. And like seeing those that kind of growth with somebody that 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 tenure that that longevity within his career, it showed me that the opportunity is there for me as well. When you were uh, eventually recruited to WWE, obviously it was mm-hmm. a process that some fans thought might include three people. Others saw that it was going to be two, um, and it ended up being, of course, two. And and now, of course, you're you're here uh, as a singles wrestler. But as that process was unfolding. What was the pitch like? Like, and did you even need to be pitched that hard? Was it? Hey, look, we got an opportunity at the Performance Center. We want you in. We want to make you a part of NXT, and we have plans for you right away. Um, or, you know, what was said to you that made you think not only is this a dream that I want to fulfill, but it's actually a really good opportunity for my career, something that can take me further than I currently am. The first time that we were approached, it was while we were still somewhat on the independent. And when that opportunity came to us, there were some situations that we had to navigate. Mm -hmm. But luckily, we had built up a reputation where individuals wanted to see the best of us, uh, the best out of us and for us. So some wheels got turning and it allowed for us to make our way here to the WWE. And once that happened, we knew that this is where we wanted to be. The PC is a wealth of knowledge that we were needing. Like we were able to be successful and learn under the learning trees of certain coaches uh, that we ended up, well, trainers, we would say, uh, that we ended up coming across while we were on the independence of people that were six, more successful than us that were mm. like humble enough to reach back and help pull us up. And now that we are here, we, now once we got here, it became this, like just this wealth of knowledge that just came that became dumped on us. And as I started to blossom within that, it began to show me that the skills were always there. We just needed to fine tune them. And that is exactly what's been happening here. We've been fine-tuned. I, I've fine-tuned my skills to the point that I believe in myself way more than I ever have in my entire life. Um, not just professionally, but personally. The coaches here aren't just like professional and business coaches. They are there for you in life. I've gotten so much life experience uh, from just the the simple chit chats that we have in passing or in between uh, 
talking about critiques of matches and stuff like that. I, I've grown exponentially in just the three years that I have spent here. Well, you actually led directly into my next question, which is always great when it works out that way during an interview. Uh, the circumstances, of course, of you becoming a singles wrestler six months ago in WWE, they were unplanned, certainly rather unfortunate given the way some things unfolded. My dog decided to grab a, a, a chew toy and a squeaky toy and play with it right in the middle of our conversation. Here. Please give it to me. Thank you. All right. We're not going to be playing with that. Anyway, getting back to the question, uh, Sean mentioned that the longer storyline that you've been in right now um, mirrors largely the reality that you were facing. You were legitimately questioning yourself as a singles wrestler. You'd, you'd gotten over, hey, do I belong here already? We already discussed that. But now you're wondering, can I make it on my own? You're unsure of what was ahead. When did it click for you that Sean, Triple H, whoever else backstage, that what they were telling you, hey, we got your back. We're going to support you as a singles wrestler. We want to see you succeed. When did it click for you that like that was real and it was actually going to pay off? Ah. <laughs> when I pulled the title from the uh, yeah. from up top of the ladder, like it's it's a weird process where nothing really feels real until it full on happens. Mm -hmm. um, things happen th uh, throughout life that prevent you from actually getting to the end goal that is said to be the end goal i'm very blessed that everything worked out and i became the north american champion and the hard work and the perseverance that i had to endure uh it it paid off like it, it in a way like that that good that feel good story of like hard work paying off right. uh, it, it this is 100 proof of it um, and it wasn't just in-ring hard work. It was personal hard work. There was a lot of time where I was like thinking about whether or not I still have this. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a singles time period before I became a tag team specialist. But even within that, I was still floundering. I, I, I was still found trying to find myself. Uh, I was uncomfortable with who I was. Uh, I was a very young individual. And I hadn't really had the life experience necessary for me to really grow within myself. I was a very, I don't want to say sheltered kid, mm -hmm. but like I, I was a, I, I shied away from certain things because of uh, preconceived notions of it. But as I experience life and I, I see what I'm actually capable of, life is, life is difficult, but it definitely equips you with the tools necessary for to become successful if necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And we also shouldn't really uh, overlook the success you had as, as a tag team performer in WWE and NXT because the MSK run included some awesome stuff in the ring, but also some pretty cool stuff out of the ring too. One of the moments that I know popped fans huge, maybe the biggest non-wrestling thing that popped fans was you guys getting to clown around with Beth Phoenix in the ring, munching on the popcorn, doing all that. How much fun was it in addition to you know wrestling and winning the championships, winning the Dusty Cup, all that great stuff that you get to do in the ring as a tag team. How much fun was it for you guys to work with her, Matt Riddle, and do some of the other things that you did outside of the ring as well? That, that is a part of this business that is often neglected. Uh, the small, like memorable moments, I don't even say small, the memorable moments that you were able to build with individuals that you have grown up watching. Um, Beth Phoenix, I have seen since... 
I don't want to make her upset by saying this since I was a back long in high time. School. It's been it's been uh, a long time uh, that you've been watching her. I don't want to make mama feel yeah. bad. Well, you don't want to catch me on top of that. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I, I mean, I've also had experiences with Riddle before. Uh, we both made our way here to the WWE, and being able to rekindle relationships and 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 start up new relationships with people, and then have a chemistry that is just natural, mm-hmm. and having fun with these people, it's it's it it's special. It really is special, and the memories that live on for fans, it, it lives on for me as well because I am still very much a fan of this. I, I still love to watch it unencumbered and just take in every bit of what the beauty of this art form is. This is amazing. So you're one of the rare guys, I would say, maybe in NXT right now who has actually not just been on the roster, but been heavily featured across the three main eras that we've gotten on NXT. So the black and gold, obviously, 2.0, and whatever we're calling it now, white and gold is kind of what I'm going with, but I don't know if you guys have a name <laughs> for it. Uh, now, we as viewers, right, have seen a lot of adjustments on screen in terms of what the product looks like, uh, the type of segments that you get to do, the type of wrestling, how long the matches are. But what have you noticed maybe behind the scenes? or And maybe it's not that much of a difference, but in terms of how things change first from black and gold to 2.0, and then from 2.0 until kind of what it is now. Uh, well, from black and gold to 2.0, uh, I feel like it was more of a cosmetic change. Uh, outside of the logo changing, the arena having an overhaul and a change of that, that was probably the main difference um, in just how it was presented. Work rate never really quite changed. We were It was always still uh, asked of us to deliver the kind of uh, work rate that you expect with NXT. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the exact same time, they wanted us to have the opportunities to expand on our personalities and our characters as well, which is an absolute blessing because the vignettes and the promos and the segments that I have been able to have really have got to showcase more of who I am as a person. Um, when we first came in originally as MSK, a lot of the story was based around Nash and his and his father. Um, and there wasn't too much time where I I had for me. Mm-hmm. And now, and with the situation with the situation that happened, there is ample space for me to start showcasing who I am as a person, and inside and outside of the ring. And that was a main focus that ha- that was a part of 2.0. And then as we transition over into the, as you call it, the white and gold. Maybe it'll uh, stick. We'll see. I feel we'll like find that's out. a solid. That's a solid. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, as we transition to that, it never it didn't necessarily change mm-hmm. outside of the cos- cosmetic changes again. Um, canvas color. Uh, right, right. The space that we now have out there. Uh, it. It afforded for us to be able to showcase the abilities that we have down here in NXT, all while still having a great presentation with a new arena in the way that it is. But things never really changed. They expected the exact same amount from us, from black and gold to 2.0 to white and gold. It's just that breath of fresh air of having different things mm-hmm. kind of put a little bit more gusto in people when it came to like trying to establish themselves and get out there. You mentioned this, and it's something I've actually been wondering. It's kind of a one-off thing, but uh, 2.0, the way it was set up, the ringside area, that was a little bit way too tight, right? Like, there really was not a lot of space around the ring. <laughs> that seemed like, hey, how are you going to do a tope suicide or something if there's, like, six inches between you and the announce table, right? I mean, I, I got some precision with my... You did, you did, you did fine. I'm you a, I, 
no matter where they go, I'm gonna hit them if I want to. But it was but, tough, right? like, like it was it was small. But yes, the the uh, <laughs> the uh, the area of field uh, uh, the field of play was definitely a lot smaller. But it allowed for the individuals that had the precision and the ability <laughs> to go ahead and showcase themselves, even within that small tight window. It made it even more spectacular that they were able to do that. So it's a catch twenty two. Sure. Um, it, we wanted to have uh, the ability to have more fans inside of the arena, mm-hmm. which having that closer feel and get, being as close as it can get, as close as you can get, it it really felt like that. And even though things are kind of expanded a bit, we're we'll still get you as close as you can get. We'll yes. still get you. It's still definitely intimate there. There's no question about that. So we were talking just before we started recording about how you're at the PC, you know, frequently not only to to work out, but you're still involved in classes and still doing stuff like that. And I think that may be a misunderstanding for some people. You know, personally, I didn't think you guys didn't participate in any training, obviously, but I, I felt like maybe the more you got on TV as you get championships, as you get featured more, maybe some of that wanes off a little bit. So is that an incorrect kind of assumption that I had? And you know what types of things are you doing on a weekly basis in the performance center besides working out that people may not realize you're still doing now being on NXT and at the performance center for a couple of years. Uh, the I don't want to say the learning curve, but like the process of in which you are, I would guess I would say allowed a certain amount of freedom mm-hmm. uh, does happen once you reach a certain level of tenure or experience. Um, I personally don't feel that i have reached that level of experience i'm still learning i'm constantly a student of the game i'm watching film uh i'm looking at outside sources to be able to bring things in to make myself look unique Uh, i'm constantly trying to evolve my personality my character and my in-ring abilities and that doesn't come without practice whether it's doing promos in promo class which I was at earlier today or doing in ring for two hours. Like we do multiple times throughout the week. I still go to those. I still need those. I still want those because it keeps that drive and that tenacity that I have going. Um, And even once I have the freedom to not have to go to those things, I will still continue to, because you can only get better. You really can only get better. And also, I want to be a, a good example for the younger guys and girls that are a part of the roster as well. No matter how good you get, you can always be better. No amount of effort or um, uh, attempts that you may be doing at something are a waste of time. There's no such thing as a unnecessary rep, I guess you would kind of say. Everything that you are doing is is contributing to the growth of yourself. Speaking of those new guys and girls that you're in classes with that you're training with right now uh you know who that we either aren't seeing on tv or perhaps are not seeing a lot of yet maybe they're brand new to, to tv or, or they're mostly training with you who's kind of back there impressing you that you maybe want to shout out that fans can look forward to seeing you know soon on nxt uh you know or wherever else level up etc well um there's a group there, there, there's a couple there's a couple honestly and it's something about their mindset and their energy in regards to like going after this. It's the exact same mindset that you would have needed to be on the independence and become successful. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, a 
a tag team by the name of uh, Bronco and uh, Lucian. They uh, they've debuted on Level Up, and they are amazing. Uh, their chemistry that they have as a tag team is absolutely amazing and separated as well. They are just as talented. And that's the kind of attributes that you need to have in order to be a great tag team wrestler. Great on your own. But when you come together, you become a, a single like entity that is unstoppable. And they big, they big, <laughs> they big, they strong and they're fast and athletic. So that's a, a crazy combination of abilities to have in one person let alone two yeah, people and then you yeah. put them together it's crazy all right um who else uh i'm a huge fan of sol ruka uh she's been on mm-hmm. level up and i believe that she may have debuted on nxt tv as well yeah two and uh, her ability inside of the ring her is ridiculous is it crazy <laughs> i don't i don't want to interrupt you but is it crazy to you to see people like her like a tiffany stratton come in zero experience and pick things up this quickly because you came up obviously on the independence. You're someone who I'm sure learned at a wrestling Academy, somewhere wrestling school, and you Mm -hmm. really had to to break it through. And it's not saying that it's easier or tougher or good or bad either direction, but is it crazy to you to see some of these athletes coming out of the college ranks like her that are just like immediately picking it up? Um, Yes and no, because the individuals that are coming to us from different fields were successful in those fields as well. Mm -hmm. They have all of the qualities and the attributes necessary for them to be successful here. It's more so the mind. Mm-hmm. The mind is going to be the number one inhibitor or uh, catalyst for growth. If you are able to translate what you did to be successful in that other field to this, it's going to be extremely hard for you to not be successful. You're going to hit bumps on the road. You're going to have obstacles that you're going to have to overcome. but it happened in the other field of, uh, of uh, profession that you were in before. Mm-hmm. Just apply the exact same skills, make your way past that, and keep grinding. That's that's the best advice that I can, and that's the advice that I give to them. Uh, I doubt that I would have been able to be as successful as they are, uh, as they were in their other fields. But I know that the skills that were required for that are going to be great for the skills that they need to have here as well. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Now, when you look ahead to your long-term future in WWE, possibly one day soon, later, whenever, winding up on Raw and SmackDown, do you have that dream opponent that's on the roster right now or two that you're eyeing? I think a lot of people would very quickly say Ricochet, right? They'd love to see that match. (laughs) Seth Seth Rollins is probably a no-brainer as well. But I'm wondering who you have your eyes on. And maybe it's not guys who can fly like that. Maybe it's it's big dudes. But just kind of curious, when you look at the main roster right now, who are the couple people where you're saying that's the match? I want that to happen. Uh, I, I got a couple. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of goes, there's some selfish ones. Like I am a huge fan of AJ South. He has been pivotal to the growth of my career from afar. Mm. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet him a, a couple of times. And when they say not to meet your idols because they will let you down, that is a lie. Every <laughs> single one of my idols has lived up to and or exceeded uh, my expectations. So AJ Styles, 100% first and foremost. Uh, next would be Mustafa Ali. Um, he's his, I, I've been a fan of his in-ring ability for a very, very long time. And then also him as a person. Uh, that's, he's a very special individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cedric Alexander, 
Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and uh, we've never really been able to stand across the ring from each other. And I look forward to that day. Uh, but going off of like the ones that I would that, that are selfish, I love the uh, the style clashes. So like me and Omos, mm-hmm. like I want that. Um, Seth Rollins, of course, the Riddle. Uh, sure. uh, I I just want to go out there and have some fun. Yeah. Like, I I really enjoy being in the ring and showcasing my abilities, no matter who my opponent is. Uh, but yeah, those would probably be the ones that kind of stand out the most. Oh no, of course the new day. Uh, got, oh yeah, of course. You got to get the new day. That's yeah. honestly what my gear for uh, Halloween Havoc was inspired by. Okay. Uh, the colorway that I, I missed that, my, yeah. my new day, uh, my new day inspired gear because I was hoping that it was going to be a new day. It was going to be a new day in my life and uh, and in my career. And it was a new day. Yes, it was. Yeah. So it's it right, ended up it's working right out. Ways right there. We're looking right at it right now. Um, I'll get you out in here on this, and I appreciate you taking the time, obviously, and sitting down with us and, and talking. Uh, I've always appreciated uh, wrestling names like the one you have now. Guys like Just Incredible, Hugh Morris, Paul Bearer. There's even a certain someone who used to be named Terrorizing. Maybe you have heard of him. Uh, where did the name Wesley come from, and why did you end up? Ah, uh, so there are a lot of inspirations for this name. Uh, first and foremost, Wesley itself. I'm a huge Wesley Snipes fan. Okay. Right, growing up, white man can't jump. Uh, 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 Here's to you, Tu Wong Fu. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like those like kind all of, of them. Yeah, they all. I, I am just a Wesley Snipes fan. Um, so having the name Wesley, like that, that was what I, I started out with, and then I really couldn't necessarily narrow down on like a, a last name, but I am heavily inspired by Bruce Lee, Jet Lee, and uh, Jackie Chan as well. Okay, and uh, so having the last name Lee. It fits my admiration for the uh, for the for the Asian culture that I have mm-hmm. that I kind of grew into. I don't want to say make my make my own, but like you can't necessarily make somebody else's culture your own. But like uh, I I identified with that uh, because I didn't necessarily have a sense of culture growing up myself. Um, but yeah. Wes, Lee, Wesley Snipes, Bruce Lee, yeah. Jeff Lee, uh, you can. That, that's 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 where it came from. See, if you ask me, I might have been able to come up with the second part, right? Because okay. he's a high flyer, he's athletic. Maybe he takes his inspiration from some of that. I wouldn't have guessed you being named after the lead from Blade. Like I wouldn't have, <laughs> I wouldn't have expected that to be where it came from. But you know what? It's cool, and the name works. And like I said, you know, a lot of those names that came before you, they're very similar like that. They got over pretty big, so hopefully Wesley, of course, does as well. And you can catch him, by the way, a little bit of a reminder here, uh, every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern USA Network on NXT airing weekly. I believe uh, NXT deadline is coming up Saturday, December 10th. I think I got that right, so you can probably catch him on that show or at least somewhere around that show as well. And Wesley, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join us here, and I uh, hope it's not the last. Oh. Fingers crossed it's not the last because this is awesome. This is great. This is awesome. so much fun. Great, man. Best of luck, and uh, thanks again for joining us. 
Thank you very much for having me. You be safe. That was so much fun speaking with Wesley. Thanks again for him taking out a half hour out of his day to sit down with us. Thanks to WWE for making that happen. As I've mentioned previously, we do have a conversation in the can with Mr. Money in the Bank, Austin Theory. That will be coming to a podcast episode near you. It should come down in the next week, so you will hear that shortly. Uh, but you know, again, just want to really thank Wesley for taking the time, sitting down, opening up, really you know, bearing his soul to, to many degrees, and also just being honest and candid about the way he saw things before he started in WWE and the way he sees things now and, and the way that he sees and hopes his career will go. Uh, the future is bright for this guy. That's probably the best way to say it, especially given the way uh, WWE is made up now. The people in charge, uh, those both in NXT and the main roster, uh, the sky is the limit for Wesley. And hopefully this is just the start of many great things to come for him personally and also within his career. So with that interview now in the books, let's move over to NXT. We will talk about AEW on the back half of the show. NXT on Tuesday was an extremely entertaining program from start to finish, especially given both of the main champions were absent from the show and we didn't get a follow-up on Carmelo Hayes. So like three of the top stars on the brand weren't there and yet it was still very exciting. Now, some uh, may believe that Melo not being on the show is gonna lead to a call-up. It's possible. Uh, there's that tease potentially for someone coming in to help hit row this coming Friday on SmackDown. I personally think that's going to be Angelo Dawkins, but you know, it's possible that it's mellow. I think he said in the past, he doesn't want to be in a role like that, right? He he wants to kind of do his own thing. Certainly what he's doing with Trick Williams and NXT is working great. Uh, we will find out if he is on SmackDown this Friday or if he's just back in NXT uh, next week, but he was conspicuous by his absence. And I did think we'd have some type of storyline with him coming out of Halloween Havoc. Speaking of, if you have not heard our NXT Halloween Havoc instant analysis before listening to this podcast, I might suggest you, you pause it, go back two shows, listen to that instant analysis and hear what our thoughts were about every single match on that premium live event. But I'm assuming you've already listened to it. Let's go and break down what happened this past Tuesday on NXT. The show opened with the Women's Tag Team Championship, Caden Carter and Katana Chance against Zoe Stark and Nikita Lyons. There was a lot of fun choreography in the first five minutes, but it was also you know, pretty obvious choreography. Alliance hit a swinging Uranagi on Chance. Carter did her jumping dropkick splash combo in the corner. The champions hit a tilt-a-roll flip moonsault. Stark came back with a half-and-half -half suplex on Chance, but she countered the Zoda Sleep. I forgot what she calls that move like her flipping GTS. So I'm calling it the Zoda Sleep until someone reminds me, uh, only for Zoe to roll up Katana to win the titles. Chance immediately argued that she was not the legal woman and a second referee ran out from backstage to confirm that fact and restart the match. Replay also showed that the tag was made and the original referee missed it and made a mistake. So Carter on the restart, splashed Lions outside. Chance had an avalanche Spanish fly on Stark for a 2.99 false finish. It's a great spot. Uh, Lions hit Carter with a roundhouse kick and a split. So all of a sudden, you're thinking title change. Chance broke the fall and took Stark out of the ring. Carter chopped Lions down with Chance combining for their assisted elevated 450 splash to retain the titles in a grand total start and restart of 14 minutes. Well, this was sure as hell a ride. I mean, that's one thing I can tell you. I don't know if doing the fake out finish was necessary per se, like there was no need to really protect the challengers here. That said, it was a really nice piece of booking. The Casey's dropping the titles would have been an astoundingly bad decision for it to happen this quickly without them getting called up. I've said it before and I'll say it again. 
They are the one real women's tag team in WWE. They have an entire repertoire of like legitimate tag team moves. And not only that, they're actually exciting and effective tag team moves. And you're probably going to say, well, Silver King, what about the Boston Hug Connection, the Golden Role Models, or the Kabuki Warriors? Yes, all four of those women are better wrestlers. Bailey, Sasha Banks, Asuka, Kyrie Sane. And as teams from a wrestling in-ring work rate standpoint, yes, they were better. There's no question about that. But the Casey's are a real team. It's like comparing Kenny Omega and Hangman Page to FTR, right? It's like, yeah, Kenny Omega and Hangman Page are better wrestlers. FTR is a better tag team. So the wrestling here was also superb, I wanna say in the match. It was the best Lions has looked ever by a mile in the ring. The KC's were fantastic, well-booked, well-wrestled, well-laid out entirely. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Extra credit for the referee actually looking away during the tag that he missed. And for NXT explaining that the guy who ran out was the head ref. So he was in position to overrule the decision. It made logical sense. It all came together and I loved it. Uh, Later backstage, Stark was furious about not winning the titles and briefly blamed Lions only to walk it back and express confidence that they'll win the titles when they get a rematch. Now, I suppose a rematch is deserved given the circumstances, but it's also kind of concerning that they're running it back given that would potentially lead one to expect a title change. Either that or a heel turn by one of them against the other. Maybe Zoe Stark turns heel uh, when they lose a second time. That's possible too. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Now, we also had the men's tag team championships on the line. Pretty deadly, defending against Malik Blade and Idris Sanofe. Blade was nervous for the title match backstage. So Idris recited like the opening to 8 Mile to get them hype. Uh, deadly seemed to be putting over the challengers in their promo backstage. They were actually talking about themselves onto the match. Blade hit a flying blockbuster with Anofe dropping an elbow for a near fall right after the bell. Anofe later did a, a crossbody trust fall type of move after the top rope into the champions. Blade did the Montez Ford tope over the ring post outside and a froggy crossbody inside, but he ate an assisted gut buster. The challengers came back with a combined cutter neckbreaker for a near fall. There was a slight botch with Anofe flipping over the ropes. Uh, but Blade countered spilt milk into a roll-up for a 2.9 false finish. Anofe then got tripped off the apron with the champions hitting spilt milk for the win in 13 minutes. The botch was unfortunate just because the match was running so smooth at that point, but it was still a really good effort across the board and a super entertaining bout with the right winners. I went 3.5 stars and a B for it. After the match, Odyssey Jones pulled up in a black pickup truck with a bunch of ladies. He grabbed the guys. He wanted to lift their spirits. Uh, after they came so close, but ultimately failed winning the titles. Anofe was about it. He jumped into the into the big pickup, the back of the truck, but a girl basically had to pull Blade in the car before they drove off. I thought it was a fun little moment. It was great to see Odyssey Jones back after suffering that serious leg injury. I think it was a knee injury. On top of that, it was really nice to see something positive happen in the NXT parking lot for a change. Because think about how many times it's it's destruction and pain and assault. And now we have a bunch of people pulling up and going partying. So hopefully they had a good time. Uh, the main event of NXT was Isla Dragunov against JD McDonough. Isla cut a taped promo about JD costing him his destiny, noting that he eradicated him as a cancer from NXT UK before promising to finish him once and for all at NXT in the United States. McDonough said he was nearly unable to get out of bed Sunday after that match, but that Dragunov was actually the cancer. And JD said he would embrace the necessary evil reference that was made about him and the devil inside would come out against Dragunov. I thought it was really good promos from both guys. It was probably the best thing that McDonough has done on the mic since he 
came over to the United States. It was, it was the best presentation of him. And, and that's been a trend for the last two or three weeks. He's, it's starting to work out. I've been very critical of that gimmick and the way he's been presented. It's starting to work. They seem to be finding like the right points to pull and, and the right pressure points to press. Uh, Dragunov jumped McDonough before the bell. McDonough pounced him off the ring apron, ribs first into the announce table for an injury cell to the area that was already taped up. Now, I assumed this would set up a JD win because three trainers immediately ran out to check on Isla. Still, Dragunov went on a run. McDonough countered a flying senton with double knees to the ribs. Isla came back with a superplex and a falling forearm. JD countered Torpedo Moscow by catching him midair with a body scissors and crossface to his skull. Dragunov was bleeding from the nose or mouth. I think he bit a capsule. I wasn't positive, but he also refused to tap while he was in this submission. And the referee eventually had to stop the fight. McDonough kept it locked in for a couple seconds afterward. Then he looked at his hands almost to indicate like he was surprised at his own brutality. Dragunov was completely passed out as McDonough stood over him. And then when Isla started getting rolled away, he actually began like convulsing a little bit. And JD was proud of his actions to end NXT. So, you know, it ended on a little bit of a, uh, not a sour note, but a down note. Like if something heelish happens, you want that intensity of the boo to end the show. And unfortunately the crowd was a little silent, but that's just kind of the pacing. That, that's how they did it by choosing to wheel Dragunov out as the final moment. They're generally not gonna boo when someone's getting wheeled out like that when the heel isn't then doing anything to make them boo him further. So that's just something that they could have tweaked a little bit, but it was great stuff from these two as usual. Tremendous wrestling, good in-ring storytelling. The injury was used as a way, I assume, to excuse Dragunov's loss and potentially absence. I mean, the guy is obviously from Europe, so if he goes back there for a little bit with McDonough staying in the United States, it would make sense to do this. Five to 10 more minutes, this would have been phenomenal. It was the right booking, especially because it finally sold McDonough's gimmick like I have been saying, and that has been a long time coming as well. And I really like the necessary evil like tagline nickname for him. That really fits the character, and it's unique and different. So I do hope they stick with that. A toxic Attraction caught up via FaceTime. They were grateful that Mandy Rose retained her title and they all got out of Halloween Havoc alive. Mandy ensured that they were ready to celebrate her one-year anniversary with the women's title next week on NXT. It was executed well. It was actually cool to see like an interactive promo segment done with modern technology instead of just kayfabe cameras. It kind of reminded me, uh, there's a show on HBO Max right now called Rap Shit. And it very much reminded me of like the way they do that. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Wesley, uh, speaking of, thanks again for joining the show this week, uh, hit the ring to You Deserve a Chance. He thanked fans for motivating him when he was lost. As Wesley was saying, he planned to exceed fans' expectations. Grayson Waller interrupted, claiming he didn't really lose at Halloween Havoc. Suddenly, R-Truth made a surprise entrance in a Joker costume to welcome all the fans to Halloween Havoc obviously playing into him never knowing what the calendar looks like. He thought Waller had a British accent. He then learned that Halloween Havoc already happened. He was happy for Wesley, pissed off at Waller, who then challenged him for next week. Waller feigned leaving the ring, tried to attack, but got beat down two on one. So like, look, this was fun, right? It's always a risk asking R-Truth to like direct the segment because like, yes, he is a legend, but he can also kind of get off track when, when you have him as the main person in the segment. And that kind of did happen here. This was a little bit disjointed. Uh, it did go off the rails just a tad. Waller going right after the North American title, now that Wesley has it, makes me concerned to some degree that he might be a transitional champion, dropping it at NXT deadline. That would be an absolute shame if that's what they do. Funny enough, 
the title looks big on him. I mean, you know, he, he self-admitted, you know, not the biggest guy. And the North American Championship is one of the biggest titles in terms of its physical size in WWE. So I actually thought that contrast was pretty interesting. His promo was pretty good. Uh, he needs to, I think, learn to command the ring and the crowd a little bit better. And one of the things we did talk about a little bit before our interview and during the interview as well is that he's still going to promo class and he's still making sure he can get really comfortable in the ring to that degree. And I think you could see it here. The comfort level, it's way more than it used to be. Like it's not even close. You can tell he's more confident on the mic, but there's still that next step. It's going from, you know, fair to good to great. He has to still take that step from good to great but he's definitely improving there. Uh, there was nothing wrong with this. It could have been executed a little bit better all the way around, but you know, nothing uh, nothing to sneeze at. And we get R-Truth next week on NXT, which is of course going to be awesome. Uh, Apollo Crews was interviewed backstage saying he was ready to fully put Waller in his rearview mirror, though he did put him over as a tougher challenger than he expected. He credited Waller for knocking him off course on his mission to win the NXT title. And then he called out Braun Breaker saying he would be watching him when he returns next week. This was probably the best thing we've gotten from Cruz since he made that initial NXT return a couple months ago and went on that run over that course of the, that first show that he was on. Could definitely see him being the one to take the title off Breaker if WWE does want to call Braun up. I mean, he is a veteran. He's experienced. He has the cachet. Though, whether they do a title change and whether it's Cruz used as the one to do it, that certainly remains to be seen. Uh, the Creed brothers hit the ring. Julius's hands were all bruised from the ambulance. He said he showed Damon Kemp short-term decisions have long-term consequences. Brutus thanked his brother and demanded Damon pay up with the five minutes he promised. Kemp showed up on screen saying Julius got lucky and he's not yet medically cleared, so Brutus is going to have to wait. Brutus promised the beating would only be worse for him the longer he waited. Then he hugged his brother when suddenly Veer and Sangha attacked the Creeds from behind. Sangha hesitated to finish Julius. Veer screamed at him and then he hit Julius with a million-dollar arm and Sangha uh, when he basically snapped, he's like, all right, yeah, I'm going to do it. Went over to Brutus and choke slam Brutus instead of Julius, who he was going to in the first place. Ivy Nile came down and yelled why at both of them. They just kind of like, um, flipped their noses at her and she, you know, checked on the guys and they left. Uh, Julius was solid again on the mic. Brutus really was not, uh, there was a lack of just believability from him, I guess. And he's also had way less experience at it because it's been Julius who's primarily handled that, promo load, for lack of a better term, to this point. This felt like a spot where they could have paid off the five minutes with the Creeds and then done the attack after, but maybe there's a reason they did it this way. Seeing Veer and Sangha being that dominant while looking that dapper, I thought was a great visual. It feels like they could probably use a manager, but you know, so far so good with them. Sangha being conflicted during the attack was a nice touch because maybe that winds up playing into a larger role of them not being on the same page, or maybe it is. And this was just the last vestiges of him being a babyface coming through in a transitional moment for him. So either way, it was interesting. Uh, Shotzi fought Lash Legend. Quincy Elliott introduced Shotzi. Lash got up early. Quincy distracted her outside. Shotzi broke an attempted stretch muffler, which is actually a really good move for Lash to use. So I hope we see more of that from her. Shotzi ended up catching her with Never Wake Up, a leg hook DDT for the win. This was what it needed to be. Lash is clearly not developing as quickly as some of the other younger women who are still picking this up. She remains slow and plodding in the ring. Every move just seems like it takes her twice the effort it otherwise should. Not everyone figures it out quickly. She just needs more seasoning, in my opinion, before they put her on TV again. 
Indy Hartwell fought Saul Rucka. Backstage, Rucka said she was nervous but excited for her second match against Hartwell. She interrupted, Indy did, saying the fun and tricks may pop the crowd, but the only thing that matters is winning. Rucka got a couple moves in. Hartwell hit a forearm to the back of the head for the win in one minute. This seemed like it was going to be a heel turn for Indy, but it might have been a way to maybe push her more as a tweener. Instead, given what happened afterward, far worse though, is another superstar using the stupid forearm to the back of the head as a finisher, which these days, that and the spinning elbow or back fist, they may be like the worst trends in wrestling right now. The forearm to the back of the head is so not a wrestling move. And if it is going to be a wrestling move, it needs to be a certain type of person using it. Indy Hartwell can do so much better from a finisher standpoint than that move because she actually has wrestling talent. And yes, the springboard elbow drop probably shouldn't have remained her move. Uh, It worked numerous times and looked great. There were two times in a row where she botched it. And at that point, you kind of say, well, yeah, it's the type of move where you have to be so precise every single time to nail it. And if you're not a high flyer, then asking someone to do a springboard move to end every single match that they win is a tall task and it is a big ask. But I don't know why they wouldn't have just had her do a normal elbow drop from the top rope and make it unique somehow. That's what I would have done. So I don't love the forearm to the back of the head. And I really hope that we don't see it again from her. She just, because she can do so much better than it. After the bell, as I alluded to, Electra Lopez attacked Indy, throwing her into the post. Then she had a one-armed Liger bomb on Rucka. That was really impressive that she was able to get her up like that. She said La Madrina is back. It was a really nice return for Lopez. We'll see if they roll with her in a significant way. I had this thought coming out of the segment, though. I know Electra was replaced by Zelina Vega in Legado del Fantasma. I know Electra needs more in-ring seasoning. I admit those things. But why could they just not had both of them be part of the faction in different roles, especially given that WWE needs women's tag teams? That would have been a really unique way for Escobar to be the leader of Legado del Fantasma with a men's tag team and a women's tag team in the same faction. It would have made LDF a force across two divisions, both tag team divisions. And then of course, they would have all gotten his back when it comes to whatever title he's going after, whether it's a mid-card title or eventually a main event title. It just seems like a missed opportunity to have not kept Electra Lopez with uh, Zelina Vega. I mean, we talk all the time how we want to see men and women mixed together in factions, right? That's why one of the reasons why we loved The Way so much. That's why uh, over in AEW, it's interesting that there's two women in the JAS, right? Even though their roles are very limited, right? In in that group. But the point is, WWE, by having Electra Lopez initially with Legado del Fantasma, that was refreshing. Having uh, Zelina Vega there instead of her, when it comes to the main roster, it makes all the sense in the world as the decision that they made, but it perhaps would have been an even better decision than that to have them both there. We'll see what happens with Electra Lopez in NXT now that she's back, and we'll also see what happens with Indy Hartwell, because again, it looked like this might be a heel turn for her, but the fact that another heel came in and attacked her makes it kind of seem like Indy may be a tweener or she may be trying to figure things out and and going back and forth between the two. So all of this very interesting character and storyline development, and I am curious to see where they go. A follow-up teaser with the T-bar mask getting thrown into the fire aired. 
Dijak or whatever he's going to be called. He said, quote, the second coming isn't about retribution. It's about justice. There's really not much to these, right? But the visuals are effective. And it's great that Dijak is getting refreshed. I am curious as to whether that's going to happen at NXT deadline, December 10th. We're talking a good amount of time away, or if we're going to see him sooner than later, I hope it's sooner than later. Duke Hudson joined class at Chase U with Andre Chase wondering why Bodie Hayward wasn't there. Hudson said that he just wasn't going to make it, and he brought the teacher an apple, or I guess professor in this case. Uh, he then sat in Bodie's desk. Thea Hale's pen stopped working, so Duke gave her his pen, saying he can remember the lesson. Chase lost his mind, so Hudson apologized. He ended up stealing another student's pen, but they didn't, they didn't notice that he stole it initially. As I said last week, these Chase U segments really hit when they're funny. Otherwise, it's kind of whatever, and this week was kind of whatever. Uh, the schism were out for their big reveal. They all recited lines that just meant nothing. Joe Gacy prompted the fourth member to reveal themselves, reminding that there's no going back once they do. It was clearly a woman, given the person was in a skirt. The hoodie was removed first before the mask came off to reveal Simone Johnson. Yes, that Simone Johnson, The Rock's daughter, as Ava Rain, that's her name in NXT. She said Schism is her real family. I was honestly flabbergasted. No exaggeration. The Schism is bad enough having already kind of ruined the Grizzled Young Veterans. And now we're taking The Rock's daughter and saddling her with this group. I know she's only 21 and she's going to have many different gimmicks and incarnations in her career. But this is a go nowhere gimmick and adding Simone who already has the greatest arguably wrestling family in history behind her to this group saying it's her real family. It's just kind of asinine. Like even if the storyline is that she wants another family or doesn't want to be held down. I mean, they're kind of already doing that with Dominic Mysterio. It's just, I just, I don't know, man. They, they had Dawn and Valkyrie sitting there ready for schism and they did this instead. Was it a swerve? It was. Every one of these wrestlers, it just feels like to me would be better going their separate ways. I saw some people were really enthusiastic about it, saying they're now more interested in schism than they ever have been before. I'm not enthusiastic about it, but I suppose I'm more interested than I ever have been before. I'm kind of curious to see how much worse it can get. That's really where I stand. And I'm more convinced than ever, I hate to say it, but I'm more convinced than ever that it's the worst gimmick in NXT history. It just, it does not work for me. Maybe they're going to turn it around. Stranger things have certainly happened. But for me, right now, zero point zero. I got to go with the 0.0, at least as of right now. Uh, There was a full screen picture of the WWE Performance Center as a voicemail left for the receptionist was played, almost as if it was uh, showing a call to the cops that they would play, except it wasn't. It was just to the Performance Center. A morphed voice uh, said, quote, let go of all your pain, washing away your deepest fears. Listen with your eyes, speaking with your ears. Awaken from the pits you call the dark. Opening up to my soliloquy is just the start. Watch as I come and leave my mark as I plan to rip all of NXT apart. Sincerely, Scripps, spelled S-C-R-Y-P-T-S. I could not even begin to guess what this is. Like, hopefully it's not more, you know, stupid, creepy shit. I mean, Schism, Dyad, Scripps. Like, Scripps sounds like a group name, but the voicemail said, I and my which indicates 
a single person. And it rhymed, which makes me think maybe Scripps has something to do with lyrics and rap or poetry. I, I, what kind of name is Scripps with S-C-R-Y-P-T-S? Is this, is this the reinvention of Dijak? I, I, I don't think so. I do wonder if maybe it's a women's wrestler or a group. Given the voice was so dramatically changed, it would make sense to do that to swerve people thinking it would be a man only to reveal a woman or women. Uh, there was later in the show a promotion for NXT Deadline, the next premium live event on December 10th, and it seemed to have kind of a similar graphic style to it. I wonder if that's just because it's the style that they use or if it was supposed to be related. Uh, it could be a coincidence or not, um, but I don't know. If they delay this, whatever scripts is, out until NXT deadline, then it's going to need to be a pretty big deal to wait, you know, six weeks to find out what it is. That's a long ways off. We got plenty of time to see what NXT is going to do. This wasn't bad. It wasn't great. It was just kind of, huh? Like it was like, you saw it and you're like, I wonder what this is. And I kind of want to see whatever the next incarnation of this is. Maybe that'll give a couple clues and we can kind of determine a little bit more of what it's going to be or who potentially might be involved with it. So that is NXT this week. A lot of really good stuff on this show. It was actually one of the better episodes of NXT that we've gotten in quite some time, especially again, given the circumstances of not having your two main champions on the show and having one of your other top draws in Carmelo Hayes not there as well. A lot was accomplished. Both tag team title matches were awesome. A lot of stuff was developed going forward and it made you want to tune in next week. I think it was also the fourth NXT or something like that that exceeded 700,000 uh, viewers for WWE. Uh, in recently, not ever, obviously, but recently. I think the fourth one since Halloween Havoc last year. And I think three or four of them have all come in the last couple of months. That means NXT is on an upward trajectory. And that's great to see now that 2.0 is in the books and this white and gold era is kind of upon us. You can feel the product improving and just getting a little bit more serious and a little bit more cohesive. They're definitely trending in the right direction. So with NXT now in the books, let's move over to AEW where we had a eventful Dynamite and a quite uneventful Rampage as is usual. So on Dynamite, uh, before the show, there was a report that the Elite are going to be back in AEW imminently. And they were backstage for the show on Wednesday, according to reports. In the first half hour, there was a short video package that showed images of the elite being literally erased from key moments in AEW's history. And eventually the E in AEW was also erased out of the logo. Kind of like Thanos' snap almost, like all uh, remnants of their existence disappearing. It was clearly a return tease. I wonder though whether this was the best idea, right? Like my guess is they're probably playing off of WWE's White Rabbit stuff with the goal of more people anticipating the return each week, hoping to see them and tuning in, hoping that they're going to be there until they ultimately come back. And, you know, there is something to that. I think that is potentially a worthwhile endeavor. At the same time, I don't know that there's anyone that stopped watching AEW because the elite weren't there, as opposed to people who legitimately did stop watching WWE, or perhaps are now getting more interested in WWE because Bray Wyatt is back. They're really not similar circumstances, uh, especially given it's been like two months versus a calendar year, someone who got fired versus someone who was under investigation that 
the company didn't even mention. They're just not analogous. So I wonder if using the same tactic is really the right move here. Uh, and you know what they're going to do anyway is the whenever show they are showing up on again, whether it's Full Gear or a Dynamite, it's going to leak ahead of time because AEW is going to put it out there because they're going to want the ratings bump. That's what they're going to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I am not suggesting that's poor or incongruent with what they should do from a business standpoint. I'm just saying, I guess it's nice to tease, but if you're going to leak it out anyway, what's really the point of that, right? So I guess we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, but there's also the fact, in addition to that, that surprise returns out of nowhere, they're generally some of the more memorable moments. And we're still here, like a couple months into this thing, without any kayfabe explanation for their disappearance. Now, will that be provided? If so, great. I could see them doing tongue-in-cheek allusions to the crowd during a promo. There's also the probability that some type of agreement was signed where they can't speak about it, especially if CM Punk and his contract are getting bought out by AEW. So then if you can't speak about it, how exactly do you explain their absence or their return? The way I would book this whole thing is having the elite come back on a mission as anti-authority babyfaces, angry that there was an attempt to remove them from the company and basically take it out from under them, erasing their contributions after AEW was you know, built on their backs and their hard work, which is reality because that is the case. The only problem with that is there isn't really a authority character or a wrestler representing Tony Khan who's a heel that they could fight against because you could have easily put Mox or MJF in that role, but neither of them are heels, at least not right now. You could also have the elite come back as heels instead, but I think people want to cheer for them and that would be a mistake. So I don't exactly know what the gimmick's gonna be like, what the storyline is gonna be like when they return. This video was curious and it did pique my interest. So we'll have to see if they are gonna continue doing these. I could see AEW, because it is AEW, throw a QR code into the next one or, or something else like that. Uh, we'll see, right? We'll see what it is. Um, but I will say, in a vacuum, seeing that little video package is like, oh, wonder where they're going with this. I'm actually pretty curious. And that ultimately is the most important thing. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho and Daniel Garcia fought Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta. This opened. The faces did an assisted tornado DDT. Jericho countered a springboard with a code breaker. Yuta took out Garcia with a tope cannonball as Jericho grabbed the bat. Claudio caught him with a powerbomb and did the swing on Jericho after catching Garcia on his shoulders. So he did both at once. He took Jake Hager out with a cannonball off the apron, ran through the rest of JAS outside. There was a really dumb spot with him doing a flying European uppercut to Jericho, who was standing on the canvas, which just doesn't work in reality because his chin was down and he's flying, trying to do an uppercut. It just doesn't work. Uh, but he followed with a neutralizer and he pinned Jericho clean. Jericho later was furious, issuing an open challenge next week against any former ROH champion from any division, including even the women's division. This was a fun opener with really good work both ways. Putting Claudio over Jericho clean, I presume, is going to lead to a rematch for the ROH title. Full gear is still a ways out, so you know I don't know if they're going to do it on that show. It kind of feels like they might. We've seen so many versions of BCC versus JAS, though. The whole thing's getting tired. And having Claudio just go outside and wipe out Hager, Daddy Magic, Angelo Parker, I forgot, I forgot if anyone else or who else was out there. And Garcia was there, obviously, in the match. And the faces just winning that easily over them when Jericho has won all of these matches and pinned all of these people, including Brian Danielson, two out of three times. It's just like, 
why would you do that? Unless, of course, it's to set up Claudio and Jericho. And even if it is, I don't necessarily know that Jericho would drop the title. I would assume he would retain it. Let's keep going on Dynamite. Brian Danielson was interviewed by Renee, explaining that he's frustrated he lost to Jericho, that Garcia turned his back on him, and Yuta talked back to him. He's been angry about all that shit. Brian said he doesn't actually hate Sammy Guevara, but he's going to take out all of his frustration on him. Yuta got in his face, screaming that it was good to see Danielson fired up again. Claudio and William Regal broke up the confrontation, saying they would talk it out like adults after Brian won his match. Garcia later promised to put on the show and beat Danielson's ass again. So we got Danielson against Guevara. Brian kicked Sammy's ass for a while until Sammy hit a great springboard moonsault outside. Danielson went on his signature run. Brian avoided multiple Sammy moonsaults. They countered each other without landing anything. Danielson got the label lock. Guevara broke it in the ropes. Mixed in between were two Spanish flies, one running and another avalanche style. Brian countered the GTH in a really high effort poison Rana, plus hit the psycho knee, but he chose not to cover. Brian started stomping on Sammy, then put him in a triangle choke while hammering his head with elbows until he won via referee stoppage. Really exciting wrestling as one would expect. There wasn't much story until the finish with Danielson delivering on his promise from earlier of taking out all of his frustration on Guevara, even after he already had him beat. It was good for Brian to get a win after losing basically every significant match that he's been part of recently. Other than that, we're going to have to wait and see how the story continues to develop. We had a little bit of a taste of that later. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I went four stars and an A- minus for this. Uh, also on Dynamite, MJF came out for an interview with Renee, and based on it not being Tony Schiavone, I thought it was pretty obvious where it was going. She asked about full gear, so MJF grabbed the mic and imitated Mox's promo style. He called Mox mid and told Renee to shut her mouth. He clarified that he will wrestle Mox mostly clean, given he's MJF and couldn't do it all the way clean. MJF then promised he would not use the Dynamite Diamond Ring against Mox. He said he won't be fighting Mox or anyone else, but rather everyone who has ever said he wasn't good enough. As MJF was wrapping up, Stokely Hathaway came out, insinuating the firm might help him make Mox less than 100% before full gear. MJF slapped the mic out of his hand and demanded Mox be 100% for that match or else Stokely would be fired. So this absolutely confirmed that MJF is now a tweener, if not even more of a babyface. At least that's what we are being told to think. Now, whether he ends up staying in that role remains to be seen. He barely insulted Virginia, completely played into the crowd, not only during his promo, me against the world, all the people who didn't believe in me, all of that, but with his catchphrase at the end, he prompted the crowd to say his catchphrase, very babyface. It was surprising that he didn't go on a tangent regarding Renee being married to Mox. That's even more proof though, that they didn't want him to go super heel and they're trying to show him in a different light. So we'll talk about a little bit of how this further transpired in a moment, because we did have the AEW championship match, John Moxley defending against Penta El Cerro Miedo in the main event. You might be wondering why this match happened. Well, that is a good question. Technically, Mox last week asked for a top tier challenger given the way the Hangman Page match ended. So if you wanna call that some type of open challenge that Penta filled, then I'll accept that. I will buy that. But there wasn't a specific reason why Penta really was the one to answer his call. So Penta was awesome in the first half. Mox was standing on steel steps when Penta went for a Canadian destroyer. Mox thankfully countered it into a DDT. Mox hit a lariat. Penta did a double stomp off the ropes and a package pile driver. It legitimately looked like Mox like landed on his head and twisted his neck. Mox then caught Penta off the ropes with Paradigm Shift and Death Rider for the win. And it was actually kind of a sudden finish. It was a really 
good match, but it was shy of being great. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Now, immediately after the bell, this is what we've been getting to. The firm attacked Mox with Morrissey landing a huge boot to start the beatdown. Stokely eventually came out. The firm beat down AEW staff while the Blackpool Combat Club locker room was showed chained shut. The idea is they were having their team conversation after Danielson's match that was mentioned earlier in the show. Now, why they would do that and have that meeting without Mox, that's a logic error. They probably should have been waiting until after his match was over. Maybe they can say they were waiting for him in the locker room. Whatever, small error. Uh, MJF came out to the stage conflicted while he was watching the attack. He first decided to go backstage and just let it go before turning around, storming down to the ring and firing Stokely to his face. Ethan Page then nailed him blind with a boot. The firm beat down MJF with Page hitting Ego's Edge. And the whole thing ended with Morrissey chokeslamming MJF through the timekeeper's table at ringside. The attack was intense and thorough, so credit on that. It was even further proof that the effort that AEW is putting in to make MJF a tweener or babyface is clear and real. Again, whether they actually follow through with that remains to be seen, but it's clearly the intention at this point. But the show-long execution of this angle, it was solid. So whether you liked this or you didn't, the execution of it was really strong. The one criticism I need to make here is actually Excalibur, who I think I've never done anything but praise on this podcast. MJF, basically their top young star, is getting his ass handed to him. And all Excalibur is worried about is the rundown of matches for the upcoming shows. I'm not so much saying he's like trying to get himself over, but AEW still suffers from this inability to let moments breathe. MJF is getting his act ass kicked. This is supposed to be this huge monumental development on your television product. There shouldn't be a commentator rambling about unaffiliated matches with graphics on the screen while this is happening. Can you imagine if like WWE did that Karrion Cross beatdown of Drew McIntyre and then ended the show promoting Raw? Like, it just doesn't make sense. You end on the fade to black. You end on the beatdown and the booze and the heel response and all of that shit. You don't end promoting your next show. So that was just a really big mistake. I mean, people would have gone nuts if WWE did something like that. And here with AEW, it was just so obvious and blatant and ill-fitting and out of place that I hope they learn uh, a lesson from that. Cigar Man at Chef Aaron 26 writes in, I don't know about you, I feel more convinced the firm is going to cost MJF at full gear to turn him into a larger than life babyface. So a couple of you wrote in saying this. I question this idea completely. First, Mox has this vacation he's supposed to go on, so theoretically he should be dropping the title at full gear. The firm certainly could cost MJF the title, but then what? That's always has to be your question when you're talking about wrestling storylines. Well, this could happen. Okay, and then what happens after that? He feuds with Ethan Page? That's not exciting. You're gonna take MJF, who just returned ultra white hot, feuding with, you know, won the chip, feuding with Mox, and then you're gonna put him in a feud with the firm, with Ethan Page, with Stokely Hathaway? That's not exciting. No one gives a shit about that. And then he's still not champion. The chip is wasted. Mox is still champion. And who's Mox fighting at this point? Maybe a returning Kenny Omega? Something like that? I mean, Hangman, if he's recovered from the concussion, maybe? Don't forget, AEW still has three weeks where they can get the MJF firm part of the feud out of the way before full gear if they want. They could even do it as a stipulation where if like he beats Page, 
then the firm is barred from ringside or whatever the case. So because of all of that, I'm leaning more towards the possibility that this entire thing is a ruse with the firm ultimately helping MJF in the end. MJF can claim he played the fans, he played Regal, making people think he wouldn't do what was necessary to win the title. Otherwise, the firm thing just doesn't really make sense. It would have been so much more impactful for MJF to have shown up at All Out, win the chip, and just straight up reveal himself under the mask rather than do the whole firm storyline. I mean, they created an entire faction around this thing. So I lean more towards it being a ruse than them costing him the title based on just logical storyline progression. AEW also has an affinity to not complete babyface turns. We've already seen that with multiple wrestlers across different storylines. Recently, Daniel Garcia and Jamie Hayter, and there's been people preceding them where this was the same type of issue. But in terms of what they're telling us on TV, it's undoubtedly that we should see him as a tweener, if not a babyface. And that is one of those other reasons why it leads me into thinking like, well, why do they want us thinking that about him? Is it because they're going to make him an ultra white hot baby face when he beats Mox for the title? Or is it because it's a swerve? And I lean much more strongly to it being a swerve. On Rampage, the tag team championships were on the line, the acclaimed defending against the varsity athletes. Max Caster took a shot at NXT for winning the ratings last Tuesday for AEW, winning the ratings last Tuesday, which... Come on, like I couldn't even believe that was in there. Uh, the heels interrupted the intro and did the scissor me because they have the trademark. Acclaimed one with the mic drop in seven or eight minutes. Mark Sterling threatened to not give the trademark back, so Billy Gunn threw him into the ring. They double stomped his nuts before hitting scissor me timbers. Billy then tore up the trademark and they scissored. Look, these guys are over like Rover. But let's just say, in terms of being over, I'm glad this is over. And also, like, let's exist in reality a little bit. They should have forced him to sign over the trademark instead of tearing it up, which accomplishes nothing because it's just a certificate showing something that you legally have. So they didn't like get rid of the trademark and also shouldn't they want to own the trademark? So if you're going to make believe the trademark is the piece of paper, then why would you rip it up? Because you should want to own that to sell your merch. And it's just so nonsensical and just little things that should be based in reality that frustrate me to no end. And AEW is, all of wrestling makes these mistakes, but AEW does it constantly. So on Dynamite, there was a number one contendership match for these tag team titles. FTR defending against Swerve in our glory. And when I say defending in this case, FTR has been the number one contenders for seven months. So it's theirs to kind of give up in this situation. So that's why they defended it, quote unquote, against Swerve in our glory. The acclaim came out before the bell. Gun Club watched from the crowd. Swerve accidentally tripped off the ropes in the middle of her pinning counter sequence. FTR hit a German suplex powerbomb and Snapdragon Bridge on Swerve. Keith Lee tagged in for a toss powerbomb. There was a good counter sequence with Dax Harwood hitting his slingshot Liger bomb. Then Keith headbutted Cash Wheeler and collapsed on top of him for a near fall. Dax took Keith off the top with an impressive superplex, but Keith rolled on his side for some reason as Cash came off the top with a splash for a near fall. And commentary did a really good job playing this off as if it was not a mistake, but purposeful, but it was definitely a mistake. FTR failed trying big rig on Keith only to eventually hit it. Again, really impressive with Swerve pulling Dax out of the ring to break the fall. The guns held Cash on the barricade as Swerve held Dax on the ropes. He ducked with Keith nailing Swerve, but after a failed roll-up, Swerve low blow Dax on the referee's blindside and Keith's blindside with Lee hitting the Big Bang catastrophe for the win to make Swerve in our glory the number one contenders. This was an exceptional match and one of the best AEW TV bouts we have seen in quite some time. While we did get a screw job finish, 
it really fit perfectly within all three of the stories that are being told here. So we have Swerve in Our Glory and the Acclaimed, FTR and Gun Club, and even internally Swerve and Keith Lee. Is it stupid that the number one contendership was on the line even when FTR had it for seven months? Yes, of course it was ridiculous. But once you put that aside, what we got in a vacuum on Wednesday was super strong. I went 4.25 stars and an A for the match, and I could probably go another quarter star, but the interference and the distraction and all that, you know that always down, downgrades it just a little bit for me. I like the idea of a rubber match between Swerve and Our Glory and the Acclaimed, giving the way both of their bouts finished, though it is all happening in a really tight window. We've talked about how AEW has completely gone away from their no rematch promise, but they're almost at the point of overdoing rematches at this point. Though again, this one in particular, I'm fine with given their storyline reason for it happening. It was also cool how Keith missed every single time Swerve cheated during the match. He's supposed to be deaf and blind and dumb to it. And that is what is happening. Eventually he's gonna see it and figure it out And then you would hope or expect a breakup at that point. It's not an impossibility that AEW changes the titles back given FTR is not going to challenge the acclaimed. And you have to believe AEW wants them to have the tag team titles before 2022 is over. That window is closing fast. If they did switch back to Swerve in Our Glory and then created an opportunity for FTR to win the titles, taking them off a tweener team, which is what Swerve in Our Glory is right now, it would make a lot of sense. I just don't see FTR like coming in and beating the acclaimed and getting booed maybe because of it. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. I guess the 2022 deadline would be artificial in theory, but it also seems like something FTR really wants to accomplish. So again, we're just gonna have to see what they do here, but I really, really liked this segment on Wednesday for all the reasons I mentioned, but mostly because the booking and the finish was appropriate for three different separate storylines that all kind of meshed together within that match. On Dynamite, Renee was geeked up to interview Soraya backstage, but all we got was Britt Baker approaching them and just starting a screaming match before the segment just abruptly ended. It was, I'm not even exaggerating. That was the entire segment. Like It was a lead into an interview segment next week, and I guess they'll talk real, you know, real reality talk. They'll mention WWE, I'm sure, or something like that during it. We'll have to see how that goes. On Dynamite, Jamie Hayter fought Rio. Soon after the bell, Rio hit her splash outside. Hayter blocked the weakest 619 ever with forearms. Rio came back with a crossbody that Hayter was supposed to, but didn't catch before moving into a brainbuster. Rio got a hurricanrana. Baker grabbed her leg in the corner as Rebel distracted the referee. Rio hit code red. Hayter came back with a Uranagi backbreaker. Rio hit a gnarly snapdragon that looked like it bent Hayter's neck. After twice failing, Hayter finally hit her ripcord lariat for the win in 10 minutes. Good wrestling here. I didn't know Hater basically took the Rainmaker from Kazushka Okada. I could have sworn she had a different finisher, like some type of sit-down powerbomb. Maybe I'm forgetting, but hey, it was a good match. Uh, Tony Storm entered after the match and held up the title with Hater pointing at her, you know, staged to ring. I assume this was a title challenge. Like heaven forbid the women get more than one segment or a little extra time so the interim AEW women's champion can actually speak on the show. Like, It feels like it's been over a month since we've heard from her or she's done anything other than put on some pretty decent wrestling. It's just like she's a background character and the whole thing that they're doing and it's super frustrating. On Rampage, there was some convoluted agreement with Jade Cargill trying to get her TBS title back, but it involved one of the baddies fighting and then she'd get the title. 
whatever. We got Willow Nightingale against Layla Gray. The heels tried to distract. Willow hit a roundhouse kick and the doctor bomb, a gut wrench Liger bomb for the win. Great finisher from her. After the match, Tony Schiavone announced she was signed to AEW. Really good move by them and a nice moment for her. She definitely deserves it. Uh, Jade and the baddies basically chased Willow out of the ring after the bell. And Jade sat in the ring promising, or fulfilling her promise, I should say, to command the show and take it over as she demanded the return of her TBS championship. Uh, Nyla Rose appeared on the big screen with the title in Jade's rental car and drove off with Vicky Guerrero and Marina Shafir. Jade said she refused to leave the ring and then punched three security guards before AEW cut to a video package. And then eventually when AEW came back, Jade was gone. So she's like, I'm taking over the show. I'm not leaving the ring until my title is returned. Three security dudes come out. She punches them. And that's enough for her to leave the ring, apparently. I mean, she was supposed to be in there for the remainder of the show. I just, again, logic error. On Rampage, the scheduled Preston Vance versus Roosh match that was supposed to be for 10's contract got changed for no reason other than Orange Cassidy held up the All-Atlantic title at the bar at Daly's Place or their stadium, whatever it's called, and suggested they do a triple threat for the title. Roosh's suit was incredible. That's the biggest takeaway I have. The booking was completely nonsensical given there was a separate reason already for them to have a one-on-one match that is now, I guess, no longer a storyline. They're just forgetting about the contract storyline. It's just mind-numbing stuff when you're trying to get people to watch and follow a show. And then you're putting up a title match for no reason whatsoever. So we had the All-Atlantic title defended on Rampage, Orange against Roosh and 10. Jose blatantly was breaking up falls during the match. Danhausen cursed him and punched him in the nuts. Roosh threw Orange into the corner with a belly-to-belly. Ten followed with a discus lariat. Roosh screwed with Ten's mask, like twisting it on his head. Orange caught him with the orange punch and put on a really, really weak sit-down cover on Ten to get the win and retain the title. After the bell, Roosh and Ten stared at each other until negative one came out on the ramp. So whether it's going to continue or not, who knows? I don't even have a take on this. The match was okay. The storyline was nonsensical. This was the main event of a terrible rampage. And that's really saying something given this was a live show and these rampages have already been bad for months, but this one was particularly bad. On rampage, the Lucha Bros backstage told Eddie Kingston they respected and cared about him. Pac then came up shaking his head that Kingston isn't able to keep composure of himself. So then Kingston stormed off. On Dynamite, Kingston was with Renee. He didn't want to talk about himself, so he preferred to talk about Mox and Penta. He predicted Mox would win, even though he loves Penta, and wanted everyone to just leave him alone. I'm legitimately confused where this is going with Kingston, but he's so good that I'm intrigued. We'll, we'll find out. Also on Dynamite, Alex Abrahantis suggested Phoenix go after the All-Atlantic title. Christian Cage walked up, wanting the title for Luchasaurus. Then Orange came in and just decided on a triple threat match for Dynamite next week. I mean, it was like 50% the same booking as what we just talked about with Roosh and Ten, except this time two guys actually wanted a title match before Orange gave it to them. It was lazy as shit booking. It's an excuse to get another title match on TV. And it feels like the purpose of this championship where we kind of said, oh, another AEW title. But then we were like, hey, you know what? If they do it internationally and they actually defend it in Europe and Japan and all that, it's a really smart way to extend their brand. It seems like the intention of this title has already been lost. It's just another AEW belt and it's another mid-card belt that is, I guess, being defended because Wardlow isn't really defending his TNT title, though technically he is, and we'll talk about that in a moment. On Dynamite, Darby Allen said in one of his strange taped promos, 
that Sting hasn't been around recently because Allen wasn't happy and threatened to stop wrestling. Sting, however, convinced him he was too good not to wrestle. Darby said he agreed as long as Sting wasn't by his side so he could prove himself. And then Jay Lethal cut a promo at him for their rematch next week. I mean, the idea of Darby casting Sting aside so that he can make it on his own, that's really good. We've been wanting that for a while, but it's weird that it's come like after a month and Darby hasn't been wrestling during this time and he's just still been involved in the Jay Lethal feud, which again, it's like, why do we need to see this rematch? There's a storyline behind it. I'm not saying there's not. I liked the parking lot attack last week. I'm just noting like, why is this what we're getting on Dynamite when there's so many other people not being utilized? Where in the blue hell is Ricky Starks? Where is Powerhouse Hobbs? <laughs> Where is Miro? Obviously we have Malachi Black and, and Buddy Matthews and some of those guys in Andrade who aren't around for specific reasons right now. But there's also a lot of other really good wrestlers that are super over that fans would pop massively for who just aren't being used on television. Starks, I think, main evented AEW Dark this week. What are you doing with these guys? On Dynamite, Matt Taven in a tape promo accepted the general open challenge that was laid out last week by Warjo. Wardlow responded that Taven's prior success means nothing against him because he'd kick his ass. So I guess the challenge is for the TNT title, even though Taven didn't specifically say that. I've already gone over why I hate the storyline, why I hate the Warjo pairing. Neither of them have singles feuds. They both have championships. It's just mind-numbing. On Rampage, the FTW title was on the line. Hook against Ari Davari. Before the match, Davari offered cash for the title since Hook wouldn't take his check. Hook smacked it out of his hands. He won with Red Rum in three minutes. Jim Ross tried to sell this as Hook continuing to make progress. It's the same thing every week. There's no progress being made. Also, last and least on Rampage, Stokely told Matt Hardy they sent Private Party to his wrestling academy so that they could train, and then he scheduled Matt for a dark elevation match. Hardy then awkwardly rapped in Stokes' face, and I didn't get to the point of that. Maybe I just it went over my head. Very possible. Just missed it completely. I do like the idea of Stokely holding Matt Hardy's contract and making him wrestle on dark elevation. That is really smart and funny. You know, it can only go on for so long. There is something to this storyline, but I just need them to kind of develop it more, especially now that the firm is doing an entirely different storyline with MJF and they have other you know things going on as well. I need more meat on the bone to really enjoy this because really Stokely Hathaway and Matt Hardy interacting with each other, it should be something I'm head over heels about. But every time I see it on my TV, it's kind of like an eye roll. It's like, oh, here we go again. Here's more non-development really in this story. So that is it from AEW. This week, like I said, there was a really a lot of good stuff on, on uh, Dynamite in particular, especially when it comes to the in-ring wrestling. There were three fantastic matches on Dynamite. I think that's the second or third week in a row where the wrestling has just been absolutely superb on that show. But man, Rampage is almost impossible to watch. I literally forgot about Rampage until 26 minutes before Dynamite, and I was able to watch the entire show in about 18 or 20 minutes, fast-forwarding through commercials and through large parts of things that just didn't matter whatsoever. It's a forgettable show. It's worthless. I don't know what they are going to do, AEW, with Rampage. There's rumors that there's an ROH show that's coming out, whether that's on TV or streaming. I don't know. They just got to rethink what these B-shows are, because right now Dynamite, it's still running hot. Everything else 
It just really isn't. You really never even hear about Dark or Dark Elevation anymore. I know people still watch it. I know they're still doing it, and there's good, maybe a couple good matches on there, but it's just not as prominent in the AEW lexicon as it used to be. So they do need to figure all of that out, especially when they get to 2023. So look, folks, I really appreciate you all joining me for this extended edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thanks one last time to NXT North American champion Wesley for joining us. And I hope you all very much enjoyed not just that conversation, but our breakdowns of NXT and AEW this week. As far as what's to come here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, we have a loaded week coming up on Tuesday. We will have our WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview, Vintage Chris Vanini and the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. We're going to break down every single match and storyline on the card, along with everything, of course, that happens in SmackDown and Raw, at SmackDown and Raw, on SmackDown and Raw, probably the third one. Everything that happens on SmackDown and Raw uh, over the next couple of days. We'll break all of that down on Tuesday's show. One week from now, same bat time, same bat channel will be your next NXT and AEW show. And then Saturday, shortly after WWE Crown Jewel goes off the air, we will have an instant analysis podcast for you right here. So if you're not already subscribed to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, be sure to do so because we have a ton of great stuff coming next week. I did also mention that we have an interview with Mr. Money in the Bank, Austin Theory in the can. I'm hoping to do an interview episode next week where we add one or two more people and put it all together. That would be a special show that would probably come out Wednesday or Friday, but that does remain to be seen. Uh, So we could also potentially uh, lock in that interview along with the WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. That's possible as well. So just look out for that interview. It should come somewhere next week. Not exactly sure yet where it is going to go. What I am sure about is that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop a five-star rating. Take a few extra moments on Apple Podcasts. Leave a written review as well. Let everyone know how much you love the show and tell them why they should subscribe. The ratings, reviews, super important for us. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Episode drops, a conversation about wrestling all week long. News, notes, funny stuff. Um, you can send DMs and tweets to the show like the one I read on earlier today. And of course, you'll be able to vote in polls before and after WWE Crown Jewel next Saturday. Thank you all once again for joining us here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.